Hi, Don Thompson here with another podcast for you. And today what I'd like to talk about is a subject that is intriguing and interesting and important to anybody interested in mindfulness and meditation. And that subject is karma. And what I'd like to do with this podcast is to talk a little bit about what karma is and the relationship of karma to what in Buddhism, uh, particularly, particularly the Mahayana school, the new school of Buddhism, are known as extreme views and how karma relates to those extreme views. And then to segue into a discussion of how karma relates to uh, what in Buddhism, again, the Mahayana school, is known as the two truths. And then to conclude with the discussion of, well, can we actually overcome karma? Do we have free will in relationship to karma? Or is the notion of free will a delusion? And we can look at that from the standpoint of both the Buddhists, or, you know, you might say, the scientists in, in, in reality, and look at what science tells us about free will, and uh, also discuss a little bit about the philosophy of Padmasambhava in what is known as the Great Liberation. So what is karma? Karma really, in essence, is cause and effect. The idea behind karma is you have a cause and then you have an effect. So the whole question related to karma is can you have choice in terms of how you react to a cause? Because the effect of of the cause could be said to, to be your choice in many ways. Now sometimes you might say that you know we have reflexive reactions to things. You put your hand in a flame and you're going to wince. You're going to pull it back. So that's that's really instinct. That's, that's not really karma. Instinct is not karma. Karma is a fact that can be seen to involve choice. And um, it could be said that animals have a kind of a karma in instinct and that they will react to things instinctively. But again, the difference between people, human beings and animals, is the fact that they have a conscious mind that's able to look at objectively reality and take a step back and get this sense of an I. I am reacting to a cause uh, and therefore creating an effect. So karma, in, in my view, and I, I believe that um, you know, most Buddhist teachers would back me up on this, is really a human arena. It's not really related to the animals. Animals have a kind of a karma in instinct, but cause and effect involves choice. Um, but then we're, we're going to circle back around to this idea of choice toward the end of this talk and and discuss really what are the scientists telling us about choice? Do they really believe in it? 
But before we do that, I'd like to talk a little bit about the relationship of karma to what is known as extreme views. This um, again comes from the Mahayana school. When the Mahayana teachers such as Nagarjuna and um, others rose up in India and started to speak to uh, issues that were not really discussed necessarily by the Buddha in the same way that they uh, looked at them. Uh, some might critique it to say that uh, the Mahayana school uh, became more metaphysical or more philosophical. And um, also that the Mahayana school, interestingly enough, became more in align with, uh, in alignment with uh, the traditional schools of Hinduism and, and the Vedas, in the sense that they, they uh, adopted in the, in the Mahayana path some of the practices of the Hindus in terms of rituals and in terms of creating a pantheon of gods and goddesses that were worshipped, you might say, or, or um, you know, the rituals would be used to ask them for things. You ask them ideally for enlightenment, and you had a bifurcation really in terms of the gods and the goddesses in the Mahayana school, where the Mahayana school looked at what, what uh, they called the worldly gods, which would be the gods of the, the Vedas and the gods of the Hindus, the, the, we typically think of Indian gods like Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva and those types of gods. Um, and they, they brought in uh, gods and goddesses that uh, were enlightened from their point of view. And this would include you know, the, tar, the Tara goddess, as well as the Vokshvashwara and so on. So there was a little bit of a bifurcation there. But let's get back to karma and extreme views. The two extreme views that are looked at in the Mahayana school are nihilism and um, eternalism. So the relationship of karma to, to nihilism is particularly important because the definition of nihilism according to the Mahayana school is that the, the uh, nihilist does not believe in karma necessarily. They don't necessarily believe that there will have to be an effect of, of a cause in a way that's negative, uh, really. They, they, don't, they, don't, they believe that they can really make a choice and not suffer the consequences if that choice, for example, is expedient and meets the, the, their short-term needs, uh, let's say, for advantage in some situation. Uh, let's say it might involve lying in some situation. So that extreme view of nihilism is um, what comes out of a disbelief or discounting of karma. They don't believe that they necessarily need to, uh, you know, suffer the cause and effect situation if they make a certain choice that is perceived from an ethical perspective, you might say, as negative. Now, the eternalist has another perspective. They believe that there is an eternal soul and or an eternal God that will, um, you know, 
something that can be worked towards in terms of your spirituality, and also that the eternal soul is just the way it is. There is an eternal soul of which you, in this life, are reflecting. The eternalist doesn't really believe in uh, rebirth. And rebirth is a philosophy that comes out of karma, because karma, by necessity almost, by definition, assumes that there's going to be a cause and effect um, in terms of your future life. So the cause and effect means that if you have a causal relationship in this life to prompt a future life that is of a certain status, uh, that's uh, an indication of cause and effect. The, the, uh, the, the eternalist believes in a sense that they can also overcome karma. Uh, I think Christianity in some ways reflects this. The Christian believes that if you adhere to the beliefs of uh, Christianity that you can overcome, you might say, your negative karma. That negative karma would be, in, the, in this worldview, to go to a hell, to go to a negative place on death. The, the Christian believes that you can overcome this karma by simply adhering to or believing in uh, the Christ. And, and by believing in the Christ, you can overcome your karma. Um, and this really will, will segue uh, into the next uh, area of discussion. But also, uh, you know, as I end up discussing Padmasambhava's uh, great liberation, it has an interesting relationship with that philosophy as well. Christianity does. So, in terms of extreme views um, in karma, um, karma really reflects, in, in essence, the idea of the true truths. And um, when, when we start to talk about Padmasambhava's great liberation philosophy, the notion of the two truths will become more evident in what that means. Uh, my sense is that uh, in Buddhism, the, you know, the conventional truth of karma is pretty much adhered to and believed in as a conventional truth, no matter what. Um, so, uh, in other words, cause and effect are a worldly conventional truth, and the scientists are telling us this. The scientists basically back up cause and effect in terms of reality. Uh, if you look at what's been done in neuroscience, if you uh, look what's been done within the scientific community in general, uh, when you look at what uh, has come out of the notion of scientific experimentation, you will note that there is causes and effects in experimentation. And the, the scientists really believe that this is, you know, these things are scientific laws. You really can't get around them. The scientists really believe, in a nutshell, in cause and effect, and in that there, there really can be nothing uh, around uh, or above cause and effect. They don't believe in the metaphysics of the two truths, uh, meaning that there's a conventional truth and an ultimate truth. They don't believe that. They believe there's a conventional truth. The conventional truth would be cause and effect. You have a cause, and then something's going to come out of that cause, uh, even at a cellular level, even at the level of uh, the material world. Uh, you know, there are causes and effects, and these are really the basis for scientific truth. 
Now, from a metaphysical perspective, uh, the Buddhists will contemplate ultimate reality. So you have conventional reality and you have ultimate reality. So from an ultimate perspective, karma, you might say, becomes irrelevant to the metaphysics of Buddhism. And um, now I'll, I'll go ahead and talk a little bit about Padmasambhava's great liberation philosophy. What Padmasambhava is talking about in the great liberation philosophy is that all truths are conceptual in nature, even karma. So, um, and he states this specifically in the text, Padmasambhava does, in his great liberation text, he states that the gods and the goddesses and karma and all of these ideas related to the Mahayana school, by the way, are conceptual truths. They are not real per se. Now, uh, we, we can get back and, and, and look at this uh, again from the, from the standpoint of conventional and ultimate. So you might say that Padmasambhava is telling us that ultimately these these things, these the, the gods, the goddesses, uh, the, you know, uh, the the, rel the uh, nature of the divine and the nature of uh, karma uh, are conventionally uh, real. Uh, now, the gods and goddesses can be debated. Scientists aren't going to believe in gods and goddesses necessarily. They, they adhere to the physical world. But the point being is, is that uh, conceptually, uh, religious people, spiritual people, will often believe in deities and heaven and, and different dimensions of reality and that type of thing. What Padmasambhava is telling us in his text is that these are all concepts and that the great liberation is to be liberated from these concepts. You are free. Now, Padmasambhava had, had a great sense of humor, and I won't get into it too much, but he, he really flouted the idea of karma in his life, uh, according to the myth. Now, whether or not these stories are true, you know, who knows? But the, the humor in them is, is evident, in my mind at least. He really took on this uh, idea uh, of, uh, you know, karma not being conceptual, and he flouted his, his ability to go around karma all the time. And uh, again, in my mind, is, is sort of a sense of humor that he had. Uh, but I won't get into details. Is that he can be, you know, even kind of offensive to some people, but we won't go there. So um, all of this begs the question, can you overcome your karma? And a lot of people seem to be interested in doing that. They feel like perhaps they're, they're stuck in patterns in their life that are karmically negative and they want to overcome their karma. And uh, the uh, neurobiologists have, have something sort of interesting to say about this uh, in that uh, if you look at some of the work that's been done by neurobiologists, they, they don't necessarily always uh, look at you know things as being static. They, they, they can be changed. Um, and also some spiritual teachers out there really uh, have really, you know, when they put up their their uh, for sale sign, they're, what they're selling to you is, is, is that they're going to show you how to overcome your karma. And um, if we look at it 
from the standpoint of almost at a quantum level or a genetic level or a cellular level. And that karma it is, is in essence uh, inherited, uh, you might say, through your genes in, in the science. This is looking at it from a more scientific standpoint. In other words, the predisposition of, your, of the people that came before you. Now, uh, spiritual people and spiritual teachers will, will call this, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll term it in a different way than the scientists. The scientists will look at it as really being predisposed to a particular path based upon your ancestral genes. It's a genetic thing. And this is really known as epigenetics. It's, it's where the genes are passing along certain tendencies or certain karmas, you might say. Um, the spiritual people will not necessarily, you know, necessarily look at it from that perspective of genes or a purely material level. Nonetheless, it's interesting that some of the activities of the gurus, uh, the teachers that propose that you can overcome your karma, are introducing mantras into your meditation. And mantras, um, according to some modern spiritual theorists, affect the epigenetics of your body um, through sound. Uh, through, you know, through sound, you can overcome or change your karma into a more positive path. Um, so that's one aspect of, of changing your karma. Uh, but also, if you go back to Padmasambhava's great liberation, simply by uh, accepting the, the conceptual nature of karma, you can just flout karma in, in, in essence. You don't necessarily need to uh, adhere to it uh, or adhere to the negative aspects of it. But this uh, circles right back to nihilism. What does that mean when you flout karma? Isn't that what the nihilist is doing? They're flouting karma? Aren't they just, you know, saying, I don't care about karma. I don't, you know, adhere to karma. But what um, what happens with the, the great liberation philosophy in the Buddhists is by moving into the heart center, by moving into compassion, you have, in essence, a change of intention. You have a change in perspective that moves you to a different place. You do not want to harm anyone. Uh, you do not want to cause harm to another individual through your actions. And oftentimes the nihilist, in being self-serving, will look to only, you know, what's going to benefit them personally. They won't look at what is going to benefit others. So by a sleight of hand, uh, the Buddhist will change their perspective to one of compassion. And once you go into the realm of compassion, that will mitigate any negative activities that might come out of your perception of being free from karma. So the, the Buddha, in essence, both frees himself from karma, from negative actions, um, through compassion, but also frees himself of uh, you know, any idea that he's limited in terms of his choice. He chooses to be compassionate, as we can choose to be compassionate. So, um, when we look at the situation, 
can we overcome karma? Uh, really, it's, it's, it's a difficult one to resolve in terms of the rational mind. It, you could say it's impossible. Um, there are a lot of ideas about it. And, and, and what Padmasambhava prompts us to do is to grasp that they are conceptual. And in grasping that they are you know, really uh, con conceptual in nature, we move to a place which is beyond the rational. Now, this doesn't mean the rational is bad. This doesn't mean that we don't need the rational, because ironically, we need the rational to get to this place. And uh, some people will, you know, discard the rational. You know, they'll say that the rational is not good. What we need to do is move beyond the rational. We need to embrace compassion without rationality, necessarily. And um, you'll see elements of this in India, for example, in Bhakti Yogi, uh, Bhakti Yoga, Bhakti Yoga. Uh, where the guru is worshipped you know, devotionally without question. You know, they don't really question what the, what the guru does or says. <laughs> they believe in the guru, and that's the path to liberation. Well, what the Buddhists are telling us is that we need the rational mind to go to the final step, you might say, of, of enlightenment. And the rational mind frees us from everything through grasping the conceptual nature of reality. We become free. A free, uh, a free individual. Freedom is had, really, through this realization. And that's really what the Buddha is prompting us to uh, contemplate, is our own freedom. But he does say to avoid the trap of nihilism and to avoid the trap of eternalism by accepting the fact that although we can't overcome karma through choice, that we should base our life through compassion. We should base the ground from which we act should be compassion, not to be self-serving. If we if we move into that arena and free free ourselves of karma, then we become a nihilist. Then we become, you know, any negative person that we know about in the world that exploits people or manipulates people in Machiavellian ways through numerous methods, and we all know what those are. <laughs> We've seen it. So um, I'll leave it at that. I think that's a pretty good discussion about karma. It's a, it's a little bit convoluted, but I think at the end of the day, <clears throat> I believe in, in my experience that we have free will, uh, but that we should move to a place of compassion uh, in order to become the ground of our efforts, and that uh, this protects us, in essence, from the traps of the extreme views of nihilism or eternalism. And uh, it is good to have the rational thought process available to us to be able to contemplate these things a little bit and not to be anti-intellectual in terms of the rational mind in this context. The rational mind can create a lot of negative things and have a lot of mischief, you know, that's true. But in this case, I think the rational mind is well suited for its uh, role of leading us in that, you might say, the final step for our uh, the final step of our liberation. In Hinduism, it's known as Yana Yoga, the, the yoga of the intellect. Again, I'll leave it at that. And thanks a lot for listening. And I look forward to talking to you soon on the next podcast.